Good morning, everyone. Today we'll be looking at Nehemiah 2, verses 1 to 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can start making your way there. And if you need a Bible, there are Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. The passage is on page 398. Again, we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, on page 398, if you're using the church's Bible. Now, you might recall last summer I preached a sermon on Nehemiah 1. In it, we saw that Nehemiah is a Jew, but he's in Susa, Persia's capital, and he's in exile, and he's been made cupbearer to the king. His job is to check the king's food for poison, and while in Susa, his brother visits, and he gives him some bad news about Jerusalem. The message is disturbing. The city's still in ruins after 80 years. So Nehemiah gets on his knees and he starts praying to the Lord. He confesses his sins and the sins of God's people. And then he humbly reminds God of his promise to restore them if they turn back to him. And he finishes his prayer asking the Lord to give him success. He desires to have the king's favor. Now in chapter 2, the Lord is going to answer Nehemiah's prayer. All this will leave Nehemiah astonished by God, and it's going to disturb God's enemies. Before we continue on, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, speak to us from your word today. Help us to have ears to hear and hearts to do, just as you say. May we love how your word speaks to our lives. It's so good. Help me, Lord, to divide the text correctly. Help me to preach it clearly. Help me to honor and glorify you in all that I say. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I have three points for my sermon this morning. The first, while waiting in prayer, God's people should remain faithful to him. Two, as we're faithful, God's mercies are everywhere. And three, God's people will face God's enemies. Let's begin our reading from Nehemiah 2, and we'll start with verses 1 to 4. It reads as this. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. While waiting in prayer, God's people should remain faithful to him. We need to trust that he hears our prayers and that he's going to answer them. And meanwhile, 
we should keep doing what's good in his eyes. This is easier said than done. When we start out, it's no sweat. One month, not a problem. But then we're in it for the long haul and we get anxious. We get tired. Six months turn into a year. A year turns into five. How much longer is it going to take, Lord? When are you going to answer? We start to squirm and we don't like it. It gets uncomfortable and even discouraging. But brothers and sisters, we must remain faithful as we pray and wait. And we pray and wait because the Lord is working according to his timeline. That doesn't mean he's selfish. If he were evil, maybe that would be the case. But we know that the Lord is perfectly good and loving. Going with his timeline is to our benefit. He knows what is best when it's best, and he always does what's good for those that he loves. It's been four months since Nehemiah prayed, Oh Lord, give success to your servant today. But today turned into one week, one week turned into one month, one month into four months. He had absolutely no clue when the Lord is going to act, but he trusts that he will. He's being patient He's depending on God and going with his timeline. And this is an example for us. Unfortunately, many of us don't follow in Nehemiah's footsteps. If you're anything like me, we like our prayers to be answered, like we like our online shopping experience. Fast, quick, and easy. And like the new standard for shipping, anything less than two days is completely unacceptable. We may wait for a while, but then we squirm and we stray from God's way. And we make up our own way instead. We compromise. Lord, you know I can't pay my bills. My debts are mounting. I've asked you to provide, but the situation's getting worse. What am I supposed to do? I know it's slightly dishonest, but if I do this, I'm sure to have the money that I need. Or, I've prayed and prayed and prayed for a spouse, Lord, but there isn't a Christian out there for me. I know it's wrong, but how about dating this unbeliever? They like me. They're a good person. We get along great. And I know in your timing, you can make them a Christian. Anyways, it's just one date. It's not like I'm marrying them. Brothers and sisters, in desperation, let's not come up with our own answers to prayer. Instead, let's wait and trust the Lord while praying. Let's not compromise. Nehemiah's wait was four months. Ours might be longer. It might be shorter. That's completely up to God. But if we wait on God like Nehemiah, it's always going to be for the better. Is the Lord having you wait as you pray? Have you prayed today, but it's been months or even years? Then keep on waiting until he answers. He hears you, and he will answer your prayers. Know, trust, and be comforted that his timeline is the best. And while praying and waiting, be faithful. Nehemiah is praying day and night for the king's heart to change, but he's also being loyal to the king he serves and faithfully doing his work. He could have easily become bitter about the situation. 
man, every day I'm risking my life for this guy. But what's he doing for Jerusalem? Nehemiah doesn't go that route, though. Instead, he tests the king's food without any complaints whatsoever. And for each job well done, he's building trust with his king. He's a living example of Proverbs 22:29, which says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. That's Nehemiah. Nehemiah is also being obedient to the Lord's command. Before Nehemiah's day, the prophet Jeremiah wrote to exiled Jews saying this, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Jeremiah 29, 7. Nehemiah is doing exactly that. He's honoring the king, and by honoring the king and seeking out his welfare, he's seeking out the welfare of the people of Persia. He's following God's word to the T. And even though Nehemiah has many good things going for him, a stable job, a luxurious environment, comfort, safety, prestige, his heart isn't clinging to these. The man has made it in this world, but all he wants is what God wants. God's city and God's people are, are still a wreck, and he wants them restored. He wants to make them secure so that they can worship. Their pain keeps eating up at him. He keeps thinking about it, and then what's internal shows up on the outside. He loses his poker face, and he wears his sadness on his sleeve. You can't be going around sad in a Persian court, though. Persian kingdom living is supposed to be filled with prosperity and happiness. You must be happy all the time, and if you're not, then you better fake it. Gloominess is a subtle but bold statement that the king isn't ruling very well. And maybe without realizing it, Nehemiah's misery starts spilling out before his king. And Artaxerxes notices. All other things don't matter to the king at this point. His attention hones in on his trusted cupbearer. And by observation alone, he knows something's wrong with his heart. It's not well. It's disturbed. The king's curious and asks, Why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Nehemiah's heart drops and he is deathly afraid. He's unsure of how the king is reading him. Often a look like Nehemiah's can be easily misinterpreted. Is this, is this a heart of insurrection? Nehemiah also knows the man to be hot-headed and quick to spill blood. For crying out loud, this guy killed his own brother to take up his throne. And to top it off, he murdered those who assassinated his father. Nehemiah is super scared to respond, but he knows he must answer quickly. Any delay could spark fury and result in his death. Proverbs 16:14 says this: "A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it." Nehemiah needs to calm any potential flare-ups. 
So he blurts out, let the king live forever. I don't have any ill will. There isn't even a hint of insurrection in these bones. He then reveals the reason for his sorrow, but he does so without stepping on the king's toes. Jerusalem's reconstruction ended by this king's order. So Nehemiah has to watch out and be careful about what he says. He doesn't even mention the name Jerusalem. He just calls it the city. Then he appeals to Artaxerxes' respect for the dead. In his opinion, everyone should take care of their ancestor's grave. To do otherwise is just plain wrong. Silence. The order of a king contested. A ruling considered the words of a god challenged. The king's wrath could have no bounds, but instead of being put to death, Nehemiah potentially hears mercy. What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Before speaking to the king, Nehemiah prays to the king of kings. That's his intuition. With his life on the line, he trusts God to be his refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 46, 1. He who has been with God in the closet will find God with him in the furnace, says Mr. Spurgeon. The prayer is brief, less than a second. He doesn't have the time to lay out everything before the Lord, but there's enough to get a word. Perhaps help. One thing's for sure. If Nehemiah is to die, he's going down praying. This man is faithful. Brothers and sisters, are we willing to wait for the Lord to act even when we're facing death? Is that how much we trust him? Is that how much we believe he's real and has full authority over our lives? And where are we at in terms of our own faithfulness to him? Out of a love for him, do we desire to do his will? How about when we're waiting for an answer to prayer? How about when the answer to that prayer is no? Whatever the circumstances, we must remain faithful to him. Continuing with point number two, as we're faithful, God's mercies are everywhere. Let's read verses five to eight. It says this, And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me a timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah is faithful, but sees the Lord's mercies everywhere. 
At this point, the man could have folded. What is it that you're requesting? Nothing, your majesty, nothing at all. But Nehemiah has been with the Lord, and he's gained great boldness. Without shame, he puts forward his request. First, he has to go back to Judah. Second, he seeks permission to rebuild the city. Artaxerxes, being no dummy, knows that this is Jerusalem. Again, these requests could be taken as slaps to the face. What are you, ungrateful of your position that I've given you? Do you think I make poor decisions? Do you think I can, you can run things better than me? But mercy after mercy is rolling down now from the God of heaven. Instead of getting upset, the king replies, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? This is a good sign, a sign that the coast is clear. Nehemiah's requests are being granted. Success has been realized today. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. It turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21.1 In his mercy, the Lord has changed the heart of his king. Something interesting that Nehemiah notes for us in verse 6 is the queen's presence. This is actually pretty odd. Now you might be thinking, why is it odd? The queen is his wife, so why wouldn't he be sitting with them? But you see, Persian queens were usually not at public dinner affairs. In the book of Esther, another Persian queen, Queen Vashti, stayed away during one of the king's parties. It wasn't until he was having a grand old time that he called upon her to come. So either Nehemiah is indicating this is a private dinner, or it could be that this mention of the queen is a nod to her help. She might have been influencing the king's approval. And if so, this is yet another testimony to God's merciful hand. And because the floodgates of God's mercy are now open, Nehemiah seizes the opportunity. He comes forward with even more requests. But he's not just spewing whatever comes to his mind. Nehemiah has been thinking. He's been planning. He's been talking about his next steps with Yahweh for months. What if the king allows me to leave? What next? What will I do? And what will I need? Preparing for next steps while praying doesn't mean you're being unfaithful. And we shouldn't assume the Lord is going to drop down from the sky what we need. We can research and see what we'll need to do when the Lord answers our prayer. Quoting the Puritan Matthew Henry, he says this, Our prayers must be seconded with our serious endeavors, else we mock God. The works of God in our own planning aren't contradictory. All of Nehemiah's planning prepares him for the very conversation that he's having right now. How long will you be gone? I know that one. Check. Here's what I'll need. Check, check. For one thing, he knows that he needs official letters from the king. These will be his passport as he travels west. Any questions the local governing authorities might have will be squelched. The king's seal will be an all-sufficient answer. What is the purpose of your travel, business, or pleasure? Business. What's the nature of your business? 
the reconstruction of Jerusalem. Excuse me, sir, but all reconstruction efforts have been halted. By what authority do you have to conduct your business? The king's. It's right here. What the governors and officials of these provinces thought was permanent took a 180-degree turn in a single day. That's the powerful hand of God at work. And they have nothing in their power to prevent Jerusalem's reconstruction. To defy Nehemiah now would be to defy King Artaxerxes. That's God's mercy. But what good is it to go all the way to Judah if you don't have what's needed to rebuild? So Nehemiah makes one last request to his king. He asks for one last letter. This time to a man named Asaph who oversees the king's forested park. Nehemiah is looking to get lumber, but it's a precious commodity. Only a letter from the king will provide the quantity and quality of wood he's needing. The lumber is going to be used for three things. A fortress on the temple mount, the city's wall, and Nehemiah's own residence. This fortress is on the north side of the temple mount, and he wants to fortify it because this is the city's most vulnerable area. It's super difficult to defend. He also desires to build his own house because he's going to be taking up his position as governor of the region. And surprisingly, the city's wall needs wood for its repair. Not only will the wood be used for the wall's gates and towers, but it'll be used for the wall itself. This is Judah's standard for its city walls. And what's happening here in Nehemiah's life reflects the time Israel was exiting Egypt. Just as the Israelites were set free from serving Egypt, Nehemiah is being set free from his exile to a foreign land. And just as God provided clothing, silver, gold, livestock, flocks, and herds for the Israelites' journey to the promised land, God has given Nehemiah all he planned for and needs for his return to Judah. The powerful hand of God spared Nehemiah's life, and now mercy upon mercy is being poured out for his every need. All this leads Nehemiah to worship the Lord his Savior. Again, the end of verse 8 reads, And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah worships the Lord by acknowledging that everything that has happened, happened because of God's good hand. The Lord made me a cupbearer. The Lord had my brother visit me. The Lord heard my prayers. The Lord helped me wait on him. The Lord gave me a heart to obey. The Lord led me to serve the king well. The Lord provided the opportunity to share my grief. The Lord spared me from the king's wrath. The Lord changed his heart about Jerusalem. And now the Lord is allowing me to travel and he's given me the materials I need. The Lord's good hand has been upon me. Brothers and sisters, every trial we overcome, everything that we have, every day that we are given, every breath in our lungs, everything that we learn, every spiritual gift we have, 
Every illness we recover from, every sin that has been forgiven, every worship service we get to attend, every relationship we have, every sin we overcome, every good work that we do, all the joy and peace we experience being reconciled to the Lord, it's all because the Lord's good hand is upon us. Like Nehemiah, mercy upon mercy upon mercy has been poured out, is being poured out, and will be poured out in our lives. We were wretched sinners deserving nothing but eternal death and hell. But the Lord has given us eternal life through his one and only Son. Our situation was pitiful. We glorified and worshipped anything and everything but God. But by his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin. It's because of him that we are right with the Father so that we might finally be able to pray to him and live lives worthy of his name. It's all because Jesus Christ poured out his blood for us. The Lord is merciful. And for those of you here that haven't believed in Jesus Christ yet, know that the Lord actually has been merciful to you up to this very moment. He's been so good providing all your needs and seeing you through life, even though you've been defying him. Don't be fooled. God's wrath is upon you. His general mercy will be coming to an end one day, either when you pass away or when Jesus Christ returns. Don't stand up to God's judgment on your own credentials or what you think are your own good works. They will not stand. You'll be judged rightly, and the verdict will be condemnation. Come to Jesus Christ and accept his free gift of salvation so that you too can be cleansed from all your sin. Receive the mercy you need through Jesus' blood. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32 It's all mercy. Every forgiven sin and all our faithful acts, it's all due to God's mercy. Our lives are full of his mercies. Brothers and sisters, do we believe this? And how are we responding to God's mercy in our lives? Do we give him the credit where credit's due? May we see that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. May we see and be in awe as we remember and see afresh his mercy in our lives. My last and final point is this. God's people will face God's enemies. Verses 9 and 8 says this. And I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Those that live for the Lord will be hated. You can count on it. We can be faithful doing everything that's right when all of a sudden we're blindsided by enemies. It can be confusing. What's happening, Lord? 
It can make us question where we've gone wrong. Sure, there might be instances when we sin against someone and get on their bad side. In that case, we need to make every effort to make things right with them. But I'm not talking about that here. I'm talking about when we have a target on our backs for no good reason. Perhaps it's because we're living according to God's word. Perhaps it's because we're sharing the gospel with others. We're just simply hated because we're Christ's followers. This is the case for Nehemiah. He arrives on the other side of the Euphrates, but his presence isn't welcomed at all. The officials don't even really know who he is, but he is a marked man. What's this guy trying to do? Take over here? They are God's enemies because they could care less about God's people. They want things to be status quo. Let Jerusalem be destroyed as it has been for 80 years. Instead of a love for the city of God and the people of God, they love the power they have over God's people. They have their own agenda for God's city, and whoever threatens their status quo will be targeted. Hence, Nehemiah is definitely on their radar. One of Nehemiah's new enemies is Sambalat. Nehemiah's appointment to governor is a threat to his power. He's the governor of Samaria, the region just north of Judah. Before Nehemiah showed up, he most likely oversaw everything in Israel, including Judah. Being ousted from his position doesn't sit well with him. In fact, the word translated displeased in verse 10 is the same word that is translated sadness when Nehemiah was before his king. This shows the stark contrast between Nehemiah, the man of God, and Sambalat, the enemy of God. While Nehemiah is sad that God's people are devastated, Sambalat's upset that someone's come to help them out. And he isn't shy to hold back this news about Nehemiah's arrival. He lets the governors of Ammon know, too. He lets the governor, a man by the name of Tobiah, know that Nehemiah's arrived. Tobiah means God is good, hinting that he's of mixed descent. He's mingled pagan ideas with the Lord's worship. And the sons of Sambalat also have Yahweh in their names, revealing that he too embraced this mixture of religions. Some of our fiercest enemies will be of mixed religions as well. A little bit of Jesus mixed with a whole lot of worldliness. Acquainted to Christ, yet a slave to Satan. Nehemiah's presence, policies, and religion is a threat to these men's own corrupt rule and perverted beliefs. So no wonder they're displeased. Later, as tools of Satan, these men will attempt on multiple occasions to stop Nehemiah's efforts to restore the city of God and the people of God. They will be a continuous thorn in his side. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. 1 Peter 4.1 Brothers and sisters, we, like Nehemiah, are God's people, and we, like Nehemiah, have targets on our backs. We're not warring against flesh and blood, though. Our enemy is Satan and those under him. They will attack, and Peter warns us to not be caught off guard by this. 
They're going to use whatever they can to strike at us. Their assaults can come externally from those that are ungodly, and they can come internally too. They may attempt to blitz us within the church. We must be on guard because our great enemy Satan is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He doesn't like it that we are doing the work of God, that we are longing for God's kingdom to come, and that we desire to see Christ glorified in his church. He's displeased that there are so many who are still for the city of God and the people of God. He hates that we are willing to lay down our lives in service to them. He despises our worship to the God of heaven. Praise be to Christ, for he is the victor and will be victorious over all our enemies, over all his enemies. His death on the cross secured Satan's defeat. The devil's time is short. When Christ returns, Satan and his armies will be cast into hell, never to be seen again. And all the ungodly, all those that are not Christ, will be cast down with them. God's justice will be complete, and we will rejoice. Nothing can stop him. His triumph will come. His enemies, our enemies, are his footstool. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your book of Nehemiah. It's yet another mercy. Forgive us, Lord, for our impatience with you, for straying away from what pleases you, and for being numb or ungrateful for all that you've been doing in our lives. In your strength, may we be found praying to you, waiting on you, obeying you, worshiping you, and fighting for your cause. Because your son died and rose again for us, may we respond with true worship as we offer our lives as living sacrifices. May your church be found glorifying you in these days. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.